This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Daphne, how are you today? Uh, I'm doing great. This is our first, and this will be the first episode that airs in the new year. So happy new year to you. And happy to, new year. to all of our listeners. How exciting. Yeah, this is going to be an exciting year. Um, we, uh, we've, we've spoken about all the things <laughs> we're going to work on this year, but yeah. most importantly, the Neonatology Review podcast that we're doing with Dr. Brodsky and Martin is airing first episode is airing tomorrow um and we have recorded episodes for the entire week so subscribe um to get access to these uh, daily episodes and then you'll have access to some uh exclusive dr brodsky and martin episodes where they give you tips and strategies to take the board mm-hmm. so that's that's going to be fun Super for sure fun. i uh, mean it was it has been fun for us to record actually and i feel like i'm learning a lot right just by doing it so mm-hmm. i think I think people will get a lot out of it if you're able to listen. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be, um, it's one of these things where it's not going to replace something you were doing before, but it's going to be like such an added value when you're adding it on to the other things you do for studying. I think so. So that's fun. Yeah. Um, any special, uh, new year resolutions that you took on? Um, so I, you know, I don't love the term resolution, but I, um, and I posted about it this week on, on Twitter that, um, I follow yoga with Adrian. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but she has been doing yoga on YouTube for like a decade. And so she's mm-hmm. like the biggest provider of free yoga and, Anyways, during the pandemic, I found it to be a very refreshing thing to add to my day or when I was having a particularly difficult time. Um, I think the her stuff is really accessible and it's easy and uh, like for whatever level you're at. And it feels like you're part of this, whatever, yoga community, which to me was mm-hmm. like such a parallel to what we're doing with the podcast. So anyways, she is doing this like 30-day jumpstart your year um, yoga plan. So that's what I'm going to mm-hmm. take on. It's my intention to to do. Not a resolution, but my my intention. And so I'm going you always, to... You always have to change the word, <laughs> huh? You're... <laughs> Well, semantics matter. And so I'm going to keep tweeting about it. I hope people in our community will join us maybe to do yoga. Maybe it's whatever they're doing to like take care Mm -hmm. of themselves that people will talk about it so we can share ideas and share just some goodness because it's been, it's been a rough year and it's been a rough Mm -hmm. month. (laughs) And anyways, so that's, that's my intention. What, what's your intention for the new year? My my New Year um, intention <laughs> is started before the New Year. I don't do New Year resolutions, right. by yeah. the way. I didn't. I um, would assume that you wouldn't, honestly. 
there's no the idea is that if you have an improvement you want to do on you yourself just do it. you don't plan you just do <laughs> that's it that's right <laughs> so um i started uh i i um i got a chess coach so mm. i am on a on a path to uh better myself as a chess player i know because um, your uh your um your chess practice came up on the podcast calendars <laughs> on the uh on the calendar of the podcast <laughs> so yeah so i found a a chess grandmaster located in croatia who's coaching me every sunday cool. so this is very very exciting you. stuff um yeah so anyway all right should we do some uh, journal club let's do it all right um all right i'm gonna begin if that's okay sure so the first paper I think we should talk about is one that got a lot of mm, buzz on Twitter, yes. um, and it was published in in JAMA, and it's the Optimist, the Optimist A mm -hmm. trial. I think there's Optimist Prime and there's the <laughs> Optimist A trial. Uh, the tri the paper is called "Effect of Minimally Invasive Surfactant Therapy Versus Sham Treatment on Death or Bronchopulmonary Dysplasia in Preterm Infants with Respiratory Distress Syndrome." The Optimist A randomized clinical trial. This is a, um, a large group of authors mm -hmm. um, that include some of our friends from Twitter, um, but I'm afraid of, of, leaving uh, <laughs> of leaving someone. So I'm just going to skip right past that. Um, but this was a very interesting paper, right? So, so the, the group, the, um, so the optimist group tested the hypothesis that administration of surfactant via a thin catheter would reduce the incidence of the composite outcome of death or BPD and some of its components. So, right. So the, the first question I had was, is this Lisa? Right. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess um, Lisa is a, uh, is also a, a term that has been mm -hmm. coined to define the same principle, basically, right? That uh, instead of providing surfactant to a baby via an endotracheal tube, you would use a thin catheter while the baby is still connected to some form of non-invasive support, whether it is CPAP or an IMV. And then you would administer aliquots of surfactant through that thin catheter um, and then and then pull it out without ever to ever having to uh, catheterize the trachea, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so, so that's so. I guess uh, yes. It, it both of these terms seems to be uh, uh, exchangeable and synonyms. So, this was an international, multi-centered um, clinical trial that involves thirty-three centers in a multitude of countries, including Australia, Canada, Israel, New Zealand, Qatar, Singapore, Slovenia, Netherlands, Turkey, the UK, mm -hmm. and the US. Uh, the participants uh, had to meet a few criteria. They had to be born between 25 weeks and 28, and six, 28 weeks and six days. Uh, they had to be uh, admitted to the NICU, obviously, and they had to be supported with CPAP or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation for... Uh, RDS and uh, prior to intubation, obviously. So the infants were then deemed eligible if they were on the CPAP level between five and eight centimeters of water and that the RFIO2 requirement was 30% or greater within the first six hours of life. Um, the, so that's, that's something that's very, very important, right? This idea of saying, well, CPAP 30% 
is that a criteria, right, to give surfactant? But they have good data to show that it was it was not picked at random. And I think it's the paper is very dense. I, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but that's been addressed. If that's one of the questions right. that's popping up already in your mind, uh, and I don't mean you, Daphne. I mean anybody, obviously <laughs> listening. Um, they um, they mentioned the fact that caffeine was not really controlled for, meaning it was at the discretion, and they they assumed uh, that some of the babies were on it as part of a standard management. So then they randomized and uh, every baby receiving MIST, right, which is minimally invasive uh, surfactant uh, therapy, and they matched them one-to-one with a sham group. Interestingly enough, so then you wonder, what is the sham treatment? Right. So basically, uh, Brett Manley from Australia was actually describing on Twitter what that was, meaning that they would yeah. sort of put it was very a, helpful a to get that uh, behind-the-scenes look at the studies. So. Yeah. So, so they would, uh, so they would uh, block the isolate, I guess, or the pod, or whatever, or the room, mm-hmm. and then the either the mist or the sham would happen uh, uh, behind closed mm-hmm. doors. And if you had a sham, then they would just like manipulate the baby's head, but they wouldn't do anything, mm-hmm. right? They wouldn't put a the catheter. catheter and do nothing, but they would just let the baby be, right? Um. The intervention was obviously the administration of surfactant using mist, uh, using the Hobart method, which I thought was something very fancy. They have a link to a YouTube video that's actually mm-hmm. very well done, but honestly, it's it's just a um, a sort of cardiac catheter that's being uh, passed the vocal passed by the vocal cords, and and so there's nothing really revolutionary about the Hobart method. I was I was if you were wondering, <laughs> um, they had no. Um, they had no admin, they had no protocol for administration of sedation and uh, atropine or sucrose were allowed, um, and then they gave surfactant in three to four aliquots with a ten sec- second pause between each. It's important for us to mention that um, our, our episodes are sponsored by Chiesi, which manufactures surfactant, and uh, we want to disclose that obviously as a as uh, as. Uh, a conflict of interest, but we Kiezi wants to make sure also that uh, none of the views that we're going to dis- discuss are representative of their opinion, and they're not involved, and they're not giving us any any pointers or anything to say about this trial. So that's important also for us to clarify. So, um, so then who who got intubated? Right, I mean that was the big question. And so in both groups, if the FiO two reached forty five percent or greater. Or if there was a severe or recurrent apnea or persistent respiratory acidosis, then they were eligible for intubation. And once intubated, surfactant could be administered based on clinical judgment. And so that's where the uh, the uh, the trial end. The outcomes uh, are critical. So the, the primary outcome of the study is death or BPD uh, at 36 weeks postmenstrual age or physiological bronchopulmonary dysplasia assessed at 36 weeks. So how do they define bronchopulmonary dysplasia? Um, It was um, if at 36 weeks they were supported by mechanical ventilation, CPAP, or high-flow nasal cannula at a rate of 2 liters per minute or more, or possibility number two, they were receiving supplemental oxygen with an effective FiO2 of 30% or greater, or number three, they were receiving uh, oxygen with an FiO2 less than 30%, but they did not pass a room air uh, trial. Mm-hmm. So these are the primary outcomes. The secondary outcomes included six clinical, uh, key clinical and safety outcomes, and they included 
uh, pneumothorax, uh, need for intubation within 72 hours, grade three or four IVH, uh, death during hospitalization, uh, or uh, major morbidity, and each of these were considered separately. So their samples, they, they shared their sample size calculation, but they were not able to reach their their um, their sample because of COVID. There was a lot of issues associated with COVID and enrollment, so they had to stop a bit short. They enrolled infants between 2011 and 2020, and they basically were able to get 488 infants. Uh, the infants um, of those 485 were included in the primary analysis. The median gestational age was 27.3 weeks, and... Uh, and 49.7% were female. Um, interestingly enough, the baseline characteristics of the study infants overall were similar, but the frequency of male sex, incomplete or no steroid exposure, and multiple birth within the gestational age stratum of 25 to 26 weeks were each 12 to 14% higher in the missed group. So I think that's important mm-hmm. to clarify. Okay, should we move on to uh, results? Let's do it. <laughs> okay, so the primary outcome... Right. Um, the primary outcome of death or BPD occurred in 43.6% in the missed group versus 49.6% in the control group, and that difference was not significant. So for their primary outcome, missed did just as well as control. Mm -hmm. And this is now where things are getting a little bit dicey. Looking at each individual outcome alone, death... um, was reported at uh, occurring prior to 36 mm-hmm. weeks, uh, was present in 10% of the missed group versus 7.8% in the control group. Mm-hmm. And that was not statistically significant. Right. The p-value was uh, 0.51. So higher death, but not statistically mm-hmm. significant. Looking at the incidence of BPD alone at 36 weeks, it was 37.3% in the missed group versus 45.3% in the control group, and that was significant. Mm -hmm. P-value was 0.03. The one thing that's important to mention in these results is that when you're looking at the primary outcome of death or BPD, the the confidence interval is quite wide. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at... um, the relative difference of the two outcomes, 43.6% in the missed group versus 49.6% in the control group, that difference of 6.3%, the confidence interval ranged from minus 14% to mm-hmm. 1.6%. So that's, 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 that's quite large. Yeah, and the cross is one, right? Yeah. And yeah, which is why also, I mean, they, they didn't, they didn't report that as clinically right. significant. So that makes sense. But still, you, you would want your confidence interval tight. For people studying for the boards, you want the confidence <laughs> interval to be narrow. Um, secondary outcome, the need for intubation within 72 hours was reduced mm-hmm. in the missed group. Um, 36% required intubation in se- within 72 hours versus 72% mm-hmm. in the control group. Mm-hmm. The incidence of pneumothorax requiring drainage was higher in the control group, 4.6% versus 10.2%. Um and the incidence of other key clinical and safety outcomes was not statistically different between the groups. So they looked at other stuff, I think, that we should just mention mm-hmm. um, that were not really part of the primary outcome or the secondary outcome. But treatment with MIST was associated with a reduced requirement for intubation at any time. Mm-hmm. So 54.8% versus 81%. It, it uh, reduced the incidence of PDA requiring medication, 35 versus 45%. And in the need for oxygen therapy at home in survivors to hospital discharge, 14% versus 22%. Mm-hmm. 
Um, the requirement for surfactant therapy via ET tube was also reduced after treatment with mist, 32% in the mist group, 68% in the control group. Quite a large yeah. difference. Um, and the mist group showed also reduction in four of six continuous secondary outcomes. So when they looked at the number of days, certain things were required, right? So mechanical ventilation, uh, it was one versus four days mm-hmm. uh, between mist and control. The number of days on CPAP was reduced, 17 days for mist, 22 for control. Uh, mechanical ventilation plus CPAP was 25 days for mist, 32 for um, for controls, and all forms of mechanical respiratory support, 40 days versus 45 days. So these are some these are the outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, then they did a lot of other stuff, looking at subgroups, and I think what was very very interesting um, was to look at these subgroups and the different gestational ages. Um, so looking at the outcome of death prior to 36 weeks, uh, there was a, sig- a statistically significant interaction in the relation to the treatment effect. So control group was favored at lower gestational ages mm-hmm. and misgroup was favored at higher gestational ages. And that was significant. Which so makes for sense. babies that were, Actually. which makes sense, but it makes everything so much muddier That's right. now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, and so let, let's just repeat that for a second, right? So for the outcome of death, it was better to get intubated mm-hmm. and get surfactant when you were at a lower mm-hmm. gestational age compared to higher gestational ages, but not for the composite outcome of death or BPD um, or for the outcome BPD. of BPD alone. So if you wanted to reduce death in the lower gestational ages group, it's unclear whether, um, whether it's, it doesn't appear that mist is better. Uh, the need for intubation within 72 hours of birth was 49% for the missed group versus 72% mm-hmm. for the control group within the gestational age of 25 to 26 weeks and 29% versus 72% in the ages of 27 to 28 weeks. So you, you basically see the difference prevail, but there were more intubations at the lower gestational ages mm-hmm. group. So like they, they, they were less likely to sustain themselves after missed. Um, Which makes yeah. sense also. Yep. Um, I've been speaking for a while now. Um, <laughs> um, before I go into the discussion, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, it just goes to show you how important your outcomes are, right? W- what we're defining as success um, and what is important to you. So uh, there are obviously some things that are improved with missed um and so minimally invasive surfactant treatment and that they are probably it's probably most likely to be beneficial in slightly older babies so they're able to tolerate the procedure get enough of what they need and and move forward and it may not be as successful in in the babies of lower gestational age where we're all trying to find out like what is the optimal treatment course to to minimize some of these significant morbidities and i think it just shows that these little these early 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 babies the babies who are most at risk uh, are still at risk no matter what what we do for them um but I think there are definitely some signals here that that there is a benefit of mist into in certain populations of babies for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I think this is something that that is. Um, I mean, people are talking about this as like the paper of the year right. already. Hot topic. <laughs> uh, it is a hot topic. I think it it shows that um, 
non-invasive, uh, less invasive surfactant administration is not something that will be a novelty and that will only apply to a select right. group. I think it's going to probably end up, what we're seeing now is that, yes, if you have a 22-weeker, I don't know if this is the right, right. the right path. But it seems from this paper that for the broad majority of babies admitted to the NICU, this might be yeah. the way to go. Yeah. Um, I mean, reducing and, mechanical ventilation, uh, reducing intubation significantly. Um, and, you know, I, I think when we talk about cumulative stress in the NICU, when we talk about bonding in the NICU, you know, there, there's definitely some advantages to, to avoiding longer times. 100%. Intubated and, and, or on and, and ventilation. And remember, these are babies that were very, very small, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we're, we're talking about- Yeah, these about are not the late preterms, are, right? These are, this is a moderate preterm. No, group. this is 25 to 28. Eight. Like like 30 and above are not even included in this study. So this just goes to show. Um, so this is, this is, I think, a massive paper. And, and despite this, I mean, again, the big debate is this whole- increase in mortality, mm -hmm. right? I mean, this, this 10%, um, this 10% mortality in the misgroup versus the 7.8% in the control. Um, and again, I think this is something that, that could be of concern. And people are saying that the outcome of death or BPD is not such a great outcome to look at. You mm -hmm. should probably look at it individually. Mm -hmm. So you, you can make of it whatever you want. I think the problem becomes, are you trying to replace insure altogether and that's not the point here the right. point here is to show this as a very very viable alternative and also indicate that at lower gestational ages you just have to be more cautious mm -hmm. about who you select for mm -hmm. this procedure mm -hmm. that's enough for this paper i think yeah i think you did a good job <laughs> of, of uh discussing what is a complicated uh, it's just like every paper. result every, every result you read it and you're like okay i get it and then the next result attenuates the That's thing you right. just read before. And it's like, oh, what about now? So, so I, I hope yeah, well, we'll get, uh, you know, a, a bigger study maybe to, so that we know. Maybe. Um, I think also I want to share with you guys that they have some supplemental mm -hmm. material that is super, super helpful. And I would recommend you perusing it. It shows you some of the catheters that they were using. It also shows all the data for some of the outcomes based on the gestational Which ages. And so that's super, super useful. Yeah, I think so, they were really transparent about what they did, how they did it, um, how other um, hospital, how other units can can begin to integrate the practice. Um, so I think it was for yeah. sure a neat, a neat paper. Um, okay, well, shall we discuss uh, anemia a little bit? We've got two papers actually on anemia. <laughs> So excited about those papers. So here, I'll do one and you'll do one. How about that? Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'll start with this paper, which I thought was super cool, right? Because anemia. That's the one I want to talk about. Go ahead. <laughs> How do you know which one I, I picked? You're going to say the sex differences no. in association with pretrans. See? Great. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> See, you never know. You never know. But anyways, obviously, there's this ongoing um, area of concern about anemia and transfusions and NAC. And so I'll get into it, but I, I thought this was a neat paper. Um, it just so happens we have been talking about this in our unit 
in the last month. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was particularly interesting. So um, this comes from Society for Pediatric Research. Um, Neonatal anemia relates to intestinal injury in preterm infants. Um, Lead author uh, Wilhelmine Calteren. And for anybody who's everybody's anybody whose names we we mispronounce, you let us know so we can do. Over, I feel like over time we will have offended fifty one percent of the neonatal community <laughs> by saying their names wrong. <laughs> but we want to do better, so you just give us the feedback. You let us know, and we'll do we'll do better sure. next time. For sure, for sure. So um, this is a paper out of the Netherlands. Um, This came from actually a combination of two prospective studies performed um, at the NICU and the University Medical Center, um, Groningen, um, between July 2018 and December 2020. Um, So they looked at infants born before 32 weeks of gestation within the first week of life, um, and they were exclusively looking at infants who had not yet received any red blood cell transfusions before enrollment. And what they wanted um, to look at um, was did anemia or severity of anemia um, relate to intestinal injury. And so what they used to look at intestinal in- injury was the concentration of IFABP, um, a protein that's found in the epithelial walls, uh, in the epithelial cells, sorry, of the small intestine. Um, and has already been correlated with intestinal injury of number of studies looking at neck and the concentration of this marker. And so they wanted to see, um, could we look at early signs of intestinal injury by looking at the concentration of this marker in the urine um, of preterm mm-hmm. babies um, who are uh, anemic? And the other thing they wanted, and, go ahead. And, and this is the intestinal mm-hmm. fatty That's acid binding. binding protein. Thank you. The I. FABP. We won't say that again for the rest of the episode. So <laughs> now you <laughs> <write> know. <laughs> <it down. laughs> um, and then the other thing they wanted um, to look at was basically um, the um, the regional oxygen um, of the intestines or overlying the abdomen and the splanchnic fractional tissue extraction. So did anemia change kind of oxygen? Uh, delivery and oxygen use um, in in the intestines, which I thought was a nice um, correlate to to what they were doing. So they used a case control study, which um, was a little different than a typical case control study. So they used what's called a nested case control study design, um, where basically they um, select several healthy controls for each case but they may not know the case um, yet to begin with. So they took this proportion of babies, all with anemia. So they had um, some exposure, so anemia. And then they want they followed them to see which babies required um, red blood cell transfusion. And then, then they of the cohort, they selected matched controls for those cases who then required packed red blood cell um, transfusion, which I thought was a neat way uh, to look at things. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's get started. 
So the other thing I wanted to mention is that they did exclude samples after confirmed neck diagnosis um, to prevent looking at really neck-induced intestinal injury. And they defined neck as an abdominal radiograph where they either had pneumatosis or portal venous gas or both. They also mm -hmm. described what their red blood cell transfusion threshold was, um, which I thought was very helpful because obviously this changes widely uh, between country, between unit. Um, and so I thought this was very helpful. So I think we should go over those. So the hemoglobin thresholds um, were 8 millimoles per liter or 12.9 grams per deciliter for infants on the first day uh, of life um, and infants on ventilatory support during the study period. For infants on other respiratory support, say plus CPAP, um, they use 7 millimoles per liter or 11.3 grams per deciliter. And then for infants during the first four weeks who are otherwise clinically stable, they use 6 millimoles per liter or 9.7 grams per deciliter. And um, after the first four weeks in babies who are otherwise clinically stable, they used 4.5 millimoles per liter or 7.3 grams per deciliter. Um, and so, again, depending on where you practice, I think this is more conservative than, than some places, um, especially in those first four weeks of life. But you'll have to think about that in relation to your own unit. So their study protocol, they collected urine twice weekly during the entire study period to look at the IFABP. Um, and uh, they placed the sensor to look for regional saturation of oxygen uh, on the central abdomen. So during the first two weeks after birth, they measured that um, continuously every day for at least eight hours. And then they calculated the splanchnic fractional tissue extraction for each baby. Um, in addition, they collected a variety of clinical variables, including the presence of the PDA, which is something that I was interested in looking at. So in total, they enrolled 140 infants. Um, 40 infants received a red blood cell transfusion during the study period at a median of 10 days after birth. And then they selected controls from the remaining 100 infants um, for uh, 36 cases. So in total, they include 72 infants in this um, mm -hmm kind of individual study. There were no major differences in baseline uh, characteristics except for the prevalence of mechanical ventilation and a confirmed PDA in cases. So um, for babies who required transfusion, um, there was a higher prevalence of mechanical ventilation and confirmed PDA, which I think we should keep in mind. And then um, the median uh, postnatal age to transfusion was 11 days. So let's get into the IFABP. So median levels, yeah, that's the cool one. <laughs> median levels were higher in cases than in controls on subsequent time points from seven to five days until 24 hours before red blood cell transfusion. So what that means is even for some babies, five to seven days before the need of transfusion, they had higher levels of this protein in the urine, um, which is, I think, kind of impressive. Almost a full week, um, they started to see um, that increase. And um, they also, like I said, looked at the um, uh, regional saturation of oxygen. And at uh, 24 hours 
but not before that time, before packed red blood cell transfusion, cases had lower um, saturation than controls. And looking at all the infants, the hemoglobin level correlated with this um, regional um, saturation 24 hours before transfusion, which I thought was pretty interesting. And then after mm-hmm. adjustment for the presence of the PDA, which I told you is something I was in particularly interested, um, and they looked at mechanical ventilation at the time of measurements, they still saw um, similar results. So I thought that was very valuable. And then they looked at all the infants as a group. The levels of um, urinary I, FABP correlated negatively with hemoglobin levels on subsequent time points from seven to five days until 24 hours before um, red blood cell transfusions. And levels of the urinary protein also correlated negatively um, with the regional saturation 24 hours before transfusion. Um, in again, all infants, um, they adjusted for the presence of the PDA and mechanical ventilation for all babies, um, at the time, uh, points measured and they still, again, all of the data bore out. Um, and so in both cases and controls, lower, um, regional saturation variability 24 hours before transfusion, um, correlated with higher, um, IFABP levels but not prior to 24 hours. Um, But I thought that it was interesting that basically all of the things they were looking for um, correlated. So anemia, babies with, all babies with anemia had lower regional saturations in the 24 hours um, prior, uh, before transfusion in the cases. um, And that um, lower hemoglobin levels were correlated both with the saturation and the urinary IFAPB levels. So mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. It doesn't quite change my practice yet, um, but you know, globally, I, I think we're starting to use lower um, red blood cell transfusion thresholds. Um, and so I think this just goes back to you know individualizing care based on week of gestation, acuity of baby, and um, already risk for intestinal injury. Your thoughts? Um, Yeah, I think this was really cool. I mean, I think I'm going to try to ask next week um, our labs if we can actually measure um, this because if you look at these graphs and... (laughs) I don't think we can measure this in our lab. (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about? <laughs> what is that thing you want to measure? Um, but it's impressive how the um, <clears throat> the uh, the FABP increases mm-hmm. progressively over time as right. the anemia. So, like you have these two these two graphs where you see the hemoglobin of the cases go down and the ABP mm-hmm. just increasing, um, and then you correlate that with the decrease in localized uh, oxi- uh, the localized saturation. That's it's kind of impressive. Yeah, they're and, basically linear, and it goes back, right? Like it's it's yeah. really cool. And 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 it goes back to that that dilemma that you were mentioning earlier in the discussion, which was. Uh, the idea of gut uh, of of transfusion related gut injury is this the chicken the egg is this the anemia that causes the gut injury mm-hmm. and by the time you transfuse you've already injured I think this this adds more water to the well of saying mm-hmm. yes the anemia is actually the culprit here and um, is the main reason for gut injury so 
I think this is interesting. And uh, yeah, this was a fa- I, I thought this was a fascinating paper. The other thing that I think is super valuable is anytime in our little babies, we can um, look at anything through urinary measurements um, is <laughs> so, much so, so valuable, mm-hmm. um, especially because this was changing on a day-to-day basis. Um, so mm-hmm. being able to, to get a, a lab value from urine instead of blood, I think is, especially in a baby who has anemia, right? Um, if we can draw less you don't blood, want to draw right? more blood then, then that's super super valuable so very cool <laughs> okay should we move on yeah you want to do the other paper heck yeah okay so uh, the other paper on anemia that we're discussing is called sex differences in the association of pretransfusion hemoglobin levels with brain structure and function in the preterm infants i thought you were going to pick this one because mm. it dealt with anemia <laughs> sex differences brain MRIs. So I thought this was right up your alley. And this is from uh, first author uh, Amanda Benavides from the University of Iowa. So this was a very cool um, study. Um, This was a, the University of Iowa was part of the top trial. Mm -hmm. And if you have, have we reviewed the top trial? I don't know. Not as a standalone paper. No. Fine. But it was basically uh, a paper looking at transfusion thresholds for babies, and they came up and they were looking at uh, high versus low, and uh, they outlined very interesting data looking at uh, lower transfusion thresholds based on whether a patient was quote-unquote sick versus not sick. So, And Keith Barrington has an amazing blog post summarizing Mm -hmm. both the top trial and the other trials like the PINT and all the other ones that have the ethno and all these other trials that have uh, come out. So... Um, I will link uh, Dr. Barrington's blog post because I think that's a good place to start for anybody interested. And Dr. Barrington is going to come on the show soon. So we're very excited about that. Mm -hmm. So the study uh, aimed to evaluate the impact of transfusion status on optimal brain structure and function in a subset of neonates from the top trial who participated in that trial at the University of Iowa. Um, Neonatal transfusion hemoglobin levels were used to predict brain structures from term-equivalent MRI and functional outcomes at 12 months uh, corrected gestation, uh, utilizing the Bailey uh, mm-hmm. scales of infant and toddler development. So basically, I read the objective twice and I couldn't understand what they meant. They basically <laughs> looked, <laughs> they were basically looking at the the hemoglobin prior to a transfusion being given. And depending on how low that pre-transfusion hemoglobin was, what is the impact downstream on brain MRI and and, uh, neurodevelopment? So inclusion criteria were babies with birth weight less than 1,000 grams or less and gestational age uh, above 22 weeks, but less than 29 weeks. And they had to be less than 48 hours of age at enrollment. Uh, Blood sample from the study were, um, they, they were not drawn specifically for the study. Right. They were like leftover blood samples and stuff like that. So that's important Scavenged. for them to mention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And hemoglobin obtained directly prior to each transfusion termed, that's what they called their pre-transfusion hemoglobin, was used as a marker of the degree of anemia prior to transfusion in each infant. Um, so and so uh, lower pre-transfusion hemoglobin is therefore associated with lower, lower transfusion threshold strategies, whereas higher pre-transfusion hemoglobin was generally associated with higher transfusion thresholds. They did unsedated MRIs at approximately term equivalent or at around the time of discharge, whichever one came first. And then um, 
They looked at a variety of different things, white matter, cerebral gray matter, unmyelinated cerebral white matter, um, venous, um, venous blood, cerebellar, uh, um, cerebellar, cerebellar, gray matter, cerebellar, white matter, basal ganglia, and a lot of other stuff. Cognitive function was assessed at 12 months corrected age using the Bailey 3. And that's pretty much it. So they, they collected patients from 2013 to 2017. And uh, and that basically, it was interesting, right? Because they had like three cohorts mm-hmm. of babies in the end, because they had the babies on whom they were able to get continuous hemoglobin measurements. Then they had the, ba- of those, they had the babies who they were able to get an MRI on. Right. So they started with 124 infants. They had longitudinal hemoglobin values for 97 of these. Then they had brain MRIs for 29 mm-hmm. of them. And they had barely three for 34 mm-hmm. of them. So you have these, these three things in the... Um, okay. So there were no significant, so let's talk about some of the results. Okay. Uh, there were no significant differences in neonatal brain structure or baseline baby three cognitive, uh, performance between males and females in the sample size. And I think that's the Mm -hmm. main thing I forgot to mention. They were comparing, uh, Mm -hmm. males versus females that I should have mentioned that it's in the title and everything. Well, then now you've mentioned it. (laughs) <laughs> now it's mentioned. So I'm going to go uh, into the results, so bear with me. There were no significant associations between pre-transfusion hemoglobin and total intracranial volume, cerebellar tissue, uh, gray matter, or um, or white matter in males or females. However, pre-transfusion hemoglobin was significantly positively associated with white matter in all infant participants. Mm-hmm. That is, the higher the pre-transfusion hemoglobin, the greater the white matter volume. So that already is pretty earth shattering. Mm -hmm. However, and listen to this, this was exclusively driven by the males as pre-transfusion hemoglobin was positively correlated with white matter volume in males. And for females, there was no relationship of pre-transfusion hemoglobin with white matter volume, resulting in a significant sex interaction, F. 8.26 8.26 with a p-value of 0.01. A post-hoc sensitivity, they, they tried to do mm-hmm. a post-hoc sensitivity analysis, but they were their sample size was too small, so they couldn't do it. So I'm going to skip that. Let's look at pre-transfusion hemoglobin and now cognitive outcomes. In every case, the estimated trends for males and females went in opposite direction <laughs> for cognitive outcomes. Um uh, Elevation of pre-transfusion hemoglobin were associated with descriptively lower performance on four out of five Bailey 3 subscales in female, including cognitive, expressive language, and fine and gross motor function. That is, an increase in in pre-transfusion hemoglobin was associated with lower scores on the Bailey 3 gross motor function in females only, but not males. Mm -hmm. Females had lower mean Bailey scores with higher pre-transfusion hemoglobin, but males' mean Bailey scores showed no association with pre-transfusion hemoglobin level. A post hoc sensitivity analysis was subsequently conducted in which the same regression analysis and sex interactions were performed. And after excluding infants diagnosed with any grade Mm -hmm. of IVH or PVL, this analysis did not change the results of any cognitive subscale or composite outcome or or composite score regressions or sex interaction significance. 
The conclusion and they state this black on white yeah. taken together. These results suggest that males with lowest hemoglobin levels would have the worst outcomes, while female with the highest hemoglobin levels may have the worst outcomes. And this is a case of a paper mm. where the graphs are freaking so gold. So cool. They're so cool. And they're all going in both directions, um, yeah. meaning males basically need don't do well with lower transfusion thresholds while females do better. They don't do the same, like they do better. Yeah. And yeah, and it poses a lot of philosophical <laughs> questions, I think. Uh, so what, what were yeah, your thoughts I mean, on the paper? A, small sample, small, small sample studies, size, right? Small, small sample study, size. Yeah. yeah. Small study, especially they didn't have all of the outcome measures for all the participants, right? So that's something that we have to keep in mind. But this really shakes up the <laughs> – this really shakes things up, Right. And, and again, goes back to individualized medicine, especially by sex. And it, it relates to the study we just talked about. Um, mm -hmm. And it relates to the study that we looked at maybe a few months ago about um, uh, transfusions for preterm babies uh, by sex of donor. So there's something mm -hmm. about red blood cells and sex that I think we just don't fully understand yet. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it shows that blank, maybe blanket transfusion guidelines are, are missing something, <laughs> something mm -hmm. big. I also don't know what this means for girl babies who have good hemoglobin levels. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, again, I can't help myself, but you wonder if nature has predisposition mm. for females to Tolerated tolerate anemia anemia, yeah. anemia better uh, because of just the nature of being a female. I think this this the fact that we could perceive those types of things in prematurity and in mm -hmm. infancy would be mind-boggling. But um, I think again, I think this warrants more studies. This is so cool not to be studied. I mean, yeah, I no, it's 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 super interesting. Super interesting. So yeah. uh, everybody should take a look at the graphs for sure. Oh, we're going to post yeah. those graphs on Twitter. Yeah. They're too good. Lots of graphs this this week. And good for ones sure, too. For sure. Uh, a picture is worth a, a thousand words, as they say. So yeah. actually, um, this next paper had some really good um, supplementary um, graphs also in uh, JAMA. Maternal and neonatal SARS-CoV-2 immunoglobulin G antibody levels at delivery after receipt of the... Pfizer, but BNT162B2 messenger RNA COVID-19 vaccine during the second trimester of pregnancy. And I think this was such a, a just-in-time article, right? So um, I've been asked that question so many, so times. many times. So. so many people call me like, hey, Moab's pregnant. Should she get vaccinated? It's like, yes. Let's end the debate once and for well, all. Well, we're not sure if this does, but well, well, let's let's <laughs> let's take a look. Uh, Salid Ather near Kugelman. Um, this is coming to us um, out of Israel, which is not surprising. Uh, Israel's been doing the the bulk of the pregnancy and vaccination uh, research in the last uh, few years. I think they're trying the fourth dose mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, they're <laughs> they're kind of always just ahead, right? Of, yeah. Anyway, so this, they looked at um, kind of 
uh, mother infant dyads between May 2021 and July uh, 2021. So what they did is they enrolled uh, pregnant women over 24 weeks of gestation um, who had received a second dose uh, or first and second dose of the Pfizer vaccine and were not known to be previously infected uh, with the COVID virus. And then, um, again, any women who had reported previous infection or who didn't receive both vaccine doses uh, were excluded. So they obtained a maternal blood sample to look at um, SARS-CoV-2 IgG, and um, then they drew an umbilical cord blood sample within 30 minutes after delivery um, to also evaluate SARS-CoV-2 IgG. In total, they had antibody titers measured for 129 women. Um, those women were a mean age of 31.9 years, which becomes important when they look at the data. Um, and they looked at 114 neonates born at a mean gestational age of 39 weeks. So um, the mean gestational age at administration of uh, the first and the second vaccine doses were um, 21.9 weeks and 24.9 weeks, respectively. And the mean duration from the second vaccine dose to birth was about 14 weeks. And that will become important when, as we move forward. But what was Amazing was that all maternal and all newborn IgG tests had positive antibody results. 100% of moms and 100% of babies had positive um, IgG, which I thought was already kind of cool. Um, Then they talk about median levels of antibodies, which again, uh, I think across the board, across patient uh, groups, we, we still don't know how to use IgG levels. We don't know what that means for protection, but it was reported here. The median level of IgG antibodies was 1,185.2 for the women, the mothers, and 3,315 for neonates, uh, which this is, I think, the next really interesting point, that neonatal titers measured approximately 2.6 times higher than maternal titers across the uh, board. So maternal um, titers were correlated with neonatal antibody titers. So as the mom's antibodies were higher, babies had higher antibodies. But still, um, overall as a group, 2.6 times higher uh, the baby antibodies than the mommy antibodies. So the other thing they wanted to look at was do the titers differ um, with maternal age, gestational age at the second dose, and duration from the second uh, vaccine to birth. So these were things that they were looking at. So for all of us (laughs) older women, so for each one-year increase in the mother's age, the maternal and neonatal antibody levels changed by a negative 3.9%. So as mothers, as pregnant mothers were older, their antibody levels were lower. Why, why does this hurt you so much? <laughs> They're always picking on us older. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not pregnant. I'm just saying. They're always picking on us older women. Okay. And you're not old. I'm not old. You make it sound I'm like you're 75. So <laughs> but anyways, this is consistent with other data that antibody levels sure. um, with age, uh, with increasing age are, are decreased. So- That's interesting to know. In addition, for each one-week increase in the gestational age at the time of the second vaccine dose, the maternal and neonatal antibody levels increased by 10.5%. 
which is very cool, 10.5% and 9.4%. So 10.5% increases for mommies, 9.4% increases uh, for the neonates. However, furthermore, for each week that passed since the second vaccine dose, maternal and neonatal antibody levels changed by minus 12%, um, which Mm -hmm. is, is important to note. And so for each week um, that changed, uh, or so each week that passed since the vaccine dose, um, as, as a dyad, maternal and neonatal antibody levels changed by minus 10%. So it was interesting that um, the antibody levels were increased the later in gestation that you got it. However, there is maybe some evidence of, of, of waning immunity the longer you go from, uh, from the second vaccine. So I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about this a lot about in, in the discussion. They don't give us a definitive threshold time for optimal vaccination. So obviously, that's the question everybody wants to know is when is the right time to get vaccinated? Um, I think this paper shows you know, definitively that there's benefit to vaccination in, in pregnancy, um, and, and potential protection, um, with, with increased antibody levels in, in neonates. But I don't think it still answers the question about when should we get it. And, and they talk about that, their recommendation, mm-hmm. the authors of the paper are still that, um, women get it early, as early as possible in pregnancy to prevent complications of, of COVID-19 during pregnancy. Thoughts? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, I agree with, with your assessment. I think this paper is super valuable mm-hmm. because I've had um, uh, acquaintances mm. that have asked me about vaccinating during the pregnancy. And there was that data, right, that came out. People are, are aware of the fact that if you're vaccinated after you deliver and you breastfeed, mm-hmm. those antibodies will mm-hmm. cross into the breast milk. And and I've heard this before saying, well, I'm not going to vaccinate right. during the pregnancy. Just wait and then I'll pass it on mm-hmm. to the baby for during breastfeeding. But then the, the paper makes a good point in showing that, yes, it is in the breast milk, but babies who've been breastfed from mothers who have been vaccinated have no sign of antibodies mm. in their serum. Mm-hmm. So somehow it's found in the milk, but not in the baby. And so I think this is where this paper is so important because it actually shows uh, evidence of antibodies present in the baby mm-hmm. uh, at birth, which, yeah, which, which to me, it, it makes, it puts a lot of, uh, a big incentive on mm-hmm. the parents because technically, Think about this. If you don't get vaccinated during the second trimester, and how is your baby going to get those antibodies yeah. for COVID? Right. Uh, not until like whatever age the vaccine's approved for. I think it's five years Correct. now, right? Five years. Yeah. So, so it's it's. I mean, I'm seeing this from the standpoint of a of a pregnant uh, expectant mother, and I'm thinking, yeah, like the second trimester is your is your yeah, window to it. actually get vaccinated, get so that you can actually more. protect your baby and and give your baby some immunity. Um, considering that the breast milk is not really uh, working out too well in in raising the serum antibodies, yeah. So and the next cool. cohort really to to get approved is the six months to five years, right? So I mean that that less than six month. Those less than six month babies are, are really this 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 is the best way to get. We don't know what level of protection yet, but presumably some. Yeah, and some I mean, protection. and if you're 
and I'm sure that we're not the only ones. I mean, you and me have been seeing a surge in the number mm. of pregnant mm -hmm. uh, mothers showing up to L&D with COVID positive. Yeah. And Especially in the and, last and, week, right? The last two weeks. Yeah, yeah. With so, the, with the so increasing cases nationally, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, that was fun. That was, a, that was I like that paper. Do we have time for one more? I think more? so. I hope so. Right, yeah, I'll, let's I'll do, do one more. Which one are you going to do? One more. Quick one. I want to do this visual tracking at four uh -huh. months in preterm. Very cool paper. Not infants. the one I thought you were going to do. Uh, this paper is called Visual Tracking at Four Months in Preterm Infants Predict 6.5 Year Cognition and Attention. First author is Ilva Fredrickson Cowell. Uh, and this is from a, uh, a group out of Uppsala in Sweden. So the reason I picked this paper is that I did a lot of uh, research as a college student on eye tracking. I did not know that. Yeah, so my dad, my dad's a, a painter, mm -hmm. and he's he's an artist. And then we decided that we wanted to look at how people look at different paintings. Mm. So we had like we rented an eye tracking device, and we put people in Super front of cool. famous famous paintings, and then we would watch where their uh, their motions, their fixations, and saccades went. And it's super, super cool. Uh, I have some very nice pictures, actually. For anybody who hasn't picked up on it yet, Dr. Korsh is quite, quite the Renaissance man, right? A jack of all, jack of all <laughs> trees. You name it, he's done it. So, Whatever. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I've dabbled. Yeah, fine. I think. <laughs> don't sell, so don't sell me expertise that I don't have. But anyway, this was a very cool study where basically they looked at visual tracking of preterm infants, and they. Um, They collected uh, data on babies who were born between 22 and 31 weeks. Uh, that happened between 2004 and 2007. And again, we're, we're running a bit out of time, mm -hmm. so I'm going to go quickly. What they did is that in the mm -hmm. clinic, they had a sort of smiley face, and they placed an eye-tracking device on the baby, and they would basically measure several things. Um, and they would move the smiley face in a sinusoidal pattern or a triangular pattern, and they would monitor how well the baby mm -hmm. could track that object. And there's a few things, obviously, that are difficult to read through the paper because it describes eye tracking yeah. movements, and it's kind of it's kind of difficult. But basically, you have smooth pursuit, which is where if your head stays straight and you track an object without moving your head, that's smooth pursuit. Um, you have uh, head movement, so obviously you're moving your head to keep up with an object that's moving in front of you. And then finally, you have these these things called saccades, mm -hmm. and that's basically when you're jumping, your eyes are jumping from one place to the next to uh, catch up. So imagine that an object is in one place, disappears, appears somewhere else. As your eyes are jumping to that new place, that's called a saccade, meaning whatever's in between those two points, your eyes don't really uh, see what's behind Yeah, it. I like to think about it, if you're watching somebody who's watching something out of like the window of a moving car and you see that their eyes mm -hmm. uh, will jump for them. It looks like yep. it feels smooth, but the saccades are, are jumping from one point to the next. Yep. So they, uh, they did that at four months and then um, they did the Weschler at six, 6.5 years. And um, let me just, so, so the, the, they define this thing called the gain, right? The relative proportion to which the infant followed the object. And so that means that the baby was always sort of in sync with the movement of the object. So looking at uh, gaze gain and smooth pursuit gain at four months were strongly related to all Weschler's parameter at six and a half years. Gaze gain for the triangular and sinusoidal motion patterns related similarly to the cognitive scores as well. 
And for the sinusoidal motion pattern timing related to some of, they also, I'm oh, sorry, I forgot to mention, they also did um, surveys for mm -hmm. attention deficit disorders. Mm -hmm. So that also was related. Um, there were no statistically significant differences in association dependent on motion pattern and visual function was tested by an ophthalmologist and that did not influence the results. So in conclusion, the ability to attend to and to smoothly track a moving object in infancy seems to be uh, a marker, an early marker of uh, cognition and attention at six to seven years of age. And I think that's pretty cool. I mean, it's pretty cool technology. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool idea. And it's kind of nice that uh, we have these, uh, we have, we have this study. Yeah. I think uh, just for people's reference, if you're not familiar or you can't recall, you know, the, the tracking development that in typically developing infants, so not necessarily the preterm infants, attentional abilities to track appear soon um, after birth um, and then smooth mm -hmm. pursuit eye movements typically start to develop within two months of age. And so that's why they used four months um, to kind of allow for, um, some of that catch up because of the prematurity. So I thought they used the right time point. Um, and then looking um, both at the Weschler and ADD measurements at six and a half years, I thought was pretty valuable. So yeah, neat. Yeah. I think that's all we have Anything time else, for. Daphne? That's all we have time for. This was fun journal. Yeah. I'm happy that uh, we kicked off the year with this group of articles. For sure. I was afraid that there was going to be pretty bare bones out there no. considering the holidays There's and stuff. There's always something. <laughs> That's always something. Um, before we close the show, we're going to announce this week the winners mm -hmm. of the giveaway. Uh, so this exciting. is very exciting. So look out for uh, the Twitter account to announce the winners of the iPad Pro for the incubator giveaway and of the uh, and of the books that we're uh, giving away as well, and of the Brodsky and Martin series uh, for the other podcast, which you should subscribe to. I received the iPad Pro. It's at home. My daughter wants it. Was very upset that it, <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't for her. her. <laughs> and then uh, maybe the only other thing we should mention is that we've got a really neat interview next week um, with uh, Mary oh, yeah. Coughlin about um, trauma informed care of of neonates and families. So I hope that you will all join us to to have a more uh, mindful approach to to babies and families to start off the year. Maybe that yeah, will be somebody's a, intention to have a more mindful. She's dynamite. She's great. Yeah, very cool. People are going to enjoy that. Okay, All buddy. Right, have a good one. See you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple podcast or the Apple podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcast, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUpodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. NICU, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.